Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with the world-renowned earthquake expert, Dr. Lucy Jones. Thank you to all of you for listening to this podcast, and especially to all our Patreon sponsors who support this podcast and my nonprofit's work. Before the end of the year, please consider joining us as a sponsor on Patreon at patreon.com and search for my name, Dr. Lucy Jones. And now let's get to it. This episode marks six months since we first launched Getting Through It. And it's interesting that it took us 26 episodes to get to the core of your work, Lucy. What is an earthquake? Most folks would say it's the shaking they felt when describing what the earthquake was. But we know it's more complicated than that. Seismologists spend our whole careers trying to understand just what goes on during an earthquake, both in the earth generating the shaking as well as the shaking that gets to you and what you feel. So I wanna talk about the parts we know and the parts we're still arguing about because that's science, right? We argue with each other until it's settled, then the scientists get bored and we go on to new ideas. To even have this conversation though, we need to start with a definition. As you said, most people, an earthquake's the shaking they feel. But to scientists, we refer to the cause, what generates the shaking, not the effect. So just to be clear here as we talk about this, I'm gonna use the term seismic event to be anything that causes shaking and earthquake for the cause that's overwhelmingly most common, the movement of a block of rock across a fault. So before we go too far, what other types of seismic events are there? Well, volcanoes produce earthquakes. They make slip happen on faults because of the stresses in the volcano. They also produce something we call harmonic tremor or volcanic tremor. Uh, When lava moves through a crack or through a lava tube, that motion actually sets up a a harmonic sort of vibration, almost like blowing through a flute. And and you'll get this tremor that goes on for potentially hours at a time. Uh, We can see other phenomena too when we have landslides. Those rocks falling down the hill and bouncing off of things are setting off vibrations as well. So quite a few of our geologic phenomena end up producing seismic events, but only the motion across a fault is called an earthquake. Okay, so before we leave this, what about big waves crashing? I mean, I've been on the beach, you feel sometimes a big wave crashing. Is that considered a seismic event? Well, it's considered seismic uh, movement. (laughs) It's not much of an event because the, the waves don't stop moving. So we have something we call the micro seism, which is vibration that goes on through the whole earth basically all the time. It tends to have a characteristic period. It happens at right around a frequency of about six seconds. So actually when we created the first uh, seismometers and seismographs, we had to set it up to not look at six seconds because the energy from the ocean waves just dominated that frequency band and it means you couldn't see other things. The micro seism is bigger on islands where you've got more waves around them. It gets bigger during big storms, but it's present throughout essentially the whole earth. So there are a lot of causes for seismic activity, but let's get back to earthquakes, the most common cause of seismic activity. (laughs) What is an earthquake? How do you define or describe an earthquake as a scientist, as a seismologist? Okay, because we like cause, not effect, We say an earthquake is the movement of one block of rock past another 
that produces shaking as one of its effects. Think about snapping your fingers. When you snap your fingers, you have two surfaces in frictional contact. You move one past the other. It releases energy that gets the air to vibrate that you hear as a sound. When the faults move, it produces energy that we feel is the shaking. But and there are a couple of important things to think about this. Try snapping your fingers without them touching. Doesn't work, does it? Right? You can't snap your fingers without it coming together. And that means you have to have friction to have the earthquake. So if the fault could open up, there wouldn't be friction. You wouldn't have the earthquake. That's not one thing. The other thing is we need to move our analogy a little bit because it isn't just happening on a, a surface the size of my finger. Earthquakes can be happening on surfaces that are many miles long. And now you need to think about how that whole surface interacts. So we need to go to another analogy and imagine that you've put a rug down on wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, but you decided you had it in the wrong place and you wanna move it over one foot. If you just walked over and grabbed the edge of the rug without picking it up and tried to pull it, it wouldn't move. There's too much friction between it and, and the carpeting. Instead, what you do is you'd probably go around to the other side and pick up the edge so there's no longer any friction, move that edge over the foot you want to accomplish, and now you've got a ripple in the rug where the friction is reduced and you push the ripple across the rug and you accomplish moving it over. And this is a core principle that needs to be thought of whenever you think about how an earthquake happens. Anything that lets you have the earthquake with less stress is gonna be the only way it happens. Because if you can move it at the low stress, the earth's not gonna keep on building up stress past that to come up with some other way. So when we think about how earthquakes happen, we recognize that it's always gonna be whatever accomplishes that motion with the least amount of energy. And for big earthquakes that slip over a long fault, um, that low energy approach is by forming that ripple in the rug, a temporary reduction in friction that lets the earthquake rupture get going. So now, got some complicated ideas here about what an earthquake is. We have a fault surface that has to move one side past the other. We've got a place where that surface starts moving, and that's the hypocenter. Uh, and then you have this ripple in the rug. We call it a rupture surface that starts at the hypocenter and gets moved down the fault, accomplishing the motion of one side past another. Uh, this idea about how an earthquake happens uh, wasn't around say 60, 70 years ago. Even when I started in my career 40 years ago, we were still debating exactly how the whole surface went and being able to measure this rupture front moving through and seeing that that's the way all the big earthquakes happen was uh, an important part of the development of, of our understanding of how earthquakes happen. As we've talked about in previous episodes, earthquakes can actually happen anywhere, but the largest earthquakes happen on a fault. So most of our earthquakes are on faults. Yeah, that's right. And it gets back to this low energy idea. Uh, it's easier to move across an existing fault than to break fresh rock. So mostly that's where it happens. And you know, one of the things we keep on talking about big earthquakes versus small, the difference is, is how large an area of a fault it moves. So to get the big earthquake, you're moving a large piece of fault. 
And a little one, if it's really a tiny area, you know, maybe it's just a little bit of crack in the rock or maybe not even that. Maybe you're really breaking fresh rock. We think that the smallest earthquakes might be breaking fresh rock because otherwise, how do you ever get a fault? But once the fault has started to form, you've had a lot of little earthquakes, they've started to coalesce into some sort of surface, then slipping on that surface is going to take less energy than breaking other completely fresh rock. And the bigger the earthquake is, the bigger that energy difference is. And so once you get to uh, any size that we really notice as human beings, uh, you need to have a fault to be able to do that. That said, if we're only talking about a magnitude three or four, that fault doesn't have to be that big. And it isn't necessarily one that we can map or talk about. Uh, it's only when we get above five sixes where you really need to think that these earthquakes are gonna be happening on faults you can already see because you need that big enough fault to do it. Okay, so you've got these forces pushing on the fault that create the earthquake, but how does it get started? Why does it start when it does and not like the day before or three weeks in the future? How is the timing of the earthquake controlled? That's a really great question and one of those ones that we haven't answered yet. I mean, at a basic level, we know it's connected to stress, right? We Places that have more stress, that have more motion going on, plate boundaries, have more earthquakes than other places. But if that's all it was, we could probably tell you when the next earthquake was going to be because we can go into the laboratory and measure how much stress is needed to get a, a fault to move. And we could then go and measure and see when that happens. The problem is, is we've discovered we never get to the stresses we see in the laboratory, at least uh, not on a big picture because the stresses in the laboratory are so high, they could melt the fault. Think about when you push something together and you push it sideways, you'll feel the heat that's generated. That friction resisting the motion is, generates heat. And if we had laboratory sort of stresses, we would be seeing hot springs all up and down faults. We see a few of them, not nearly enough we'd actually literally be melting the fault. So we know that's not what's going on. What we've come to think is probably going on is that we do get to those high stresses somewhere. Maybe, and maybe just a little tiny piece on the fault. But once the fault starts getting moving, then the stress needed to keep it moving is often quite a bit less than the stress that was needed to start it moving. And that means that we can then keep on propagating that rupture surface, we can have the earthquake grow into some size uh, without needing to have the high stresses everywhere, which is why we can't go in and measure something and let us know when we're, we're getting ready to have the earthquake. So it means that the timing is controlled by potentially even really random sort of things that allow the stress, allow us to get moving somewhere, some tiny little asperity. And the time since the last earthquake maybe doesn't matter that much. We're physicists. We don't like the idea that it's random that says we don't have our right model, but all the data suggesting that it is. So what this gets down to is that we only have to get high enough stress somewhere. What's interesting here is that when people talk about what they feel when an earthquake starts, we hear that description online or in interviews after an earthquake, how they felt it start slow and then it grew, or they felt a jolt and it grew, they recall that initial experience, how it started for them, the shaking started, but no one really describes how it stops because the energy we feel isn't actually the end of the earth moving. 
So how does it stop, Lucy? We know how it sort of starts, how it could start. We don't know when, but we know how. What is the Earth doing to end the seismic event? Uh, another question we continue to argue about. At some level, it runs into something that stops it. So we've got this rupture front moving down the fault, and presumably it runs into something that would require more energy to get past than the earthquake is carrying along, and that gets it to stop. Clearly, that happens pretty often, which is why most of our earthquakes are small. But we really don't know if it's connected to how much energy is there to get it going in the first place versus what does it happen to run into. And we're really arguing about that. We do have some evidence that it runs into something because we often see what we call a stopping phase. So the rupture front comes and stops. And, and think about it, if your kid is skating in your driveway and runs into the garage door and goes whack, right? that noise and everything that's produced is a stopping phase. That's energy produced because you've got that motion to suddenly stop. So we essentially see that coming out of earthquake. However, it's not really what you feel because again, what you feel is what came off of the fault and then what transmitted through the earth to get to you. And that transmission process gets diffuse. Things echo, the waves bounce off of different structures. So it really does sort of taper away. And most, for most people, their experience of an earthquake, the ending isn't very noticeable because it's a gradual decay with these various residual waves bouncing around for a while. Lucy, I notice you keep talking about stress in these answers as we describe the earthquake. Can you describe how that's defined in the context of earthquakes when you talk about stress? Well, I once saw that earthquakes were defined as the process that the earth relieves the stress by transferring it to those of us who live on it. And while it might feel that way, that's talking about a different type of stress. To a physicist, stress is force applied to a surface. If it's applied onto the surface directly on, that's pressure. If it's pushing sideways, it's called shear stress. If you're not being technical about it, you can sort of think of stress as being the forces that are, are pushing here. But we also relieve stress. So there's what's called a stress drop in an earthquake. There's a stress in the earth that's pushing on the fault. It eventually moves. What the stress after the earthquake is going to be somewhat lower than it was during the earthquake. And that stress drop is actually very important in how big an earthquake gets. If it's a large stress drop, then you're going to have stronger and more intense shaking in the earthquake. A low stress drop earthquake is going to just not feel as strong, especially more drawn out in time for the, the same amount of motion that's going on. So that stress drop is important. It's also, it says, you know, things do get relaxed by the earthquake happening. The stress also gets transferred, right? Think about it. If you're slipping on one piece of fault at the end of the rupture, whatever got it to stop, the place beyond that has more stress in it now. But on the surface that moved in the earthquake, there's now less stress. So one of the things we see is that the part of the fault that moves a lot in an earthquake actually has much fewer aftershocks than the edges, presumably because we've reduced the stress there in that central part. How can people use this information to help them manage the actual seismic event they experience or the fear of what might happen? 
Well, hopefully having information makes things less frightening. Uh, and I think there's a few things that you can use to know that some of the images that people have aren't true. One is the fault can't open up. If the fault opened up, there'd be no friction, there'd be no earthquakes, that's one. Uh, we also don't see earthquakes causing volcanoes. Volcanoes can cause earthquakes, but not the other way around. <laughs> so don't have to worry about lava coming up through the La Brea tar pits, for instance. What it doesn't tell you though, is what exactly you're going to feel. Because what we've been talking about today is just how waves get generated off of the fault. This doesn't tell you what you feel though, because the waves now have to travel from the fault to where you are, and that changes what the waves are like. And we're gonna to have to dig into that topic next time as we continue to explore the ways that earthquakes affect all of us, how disasters impact our lives, and how we can together get through it. So until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. <laughs>